Pride Nation 101. Welcome to Pride Nation 101, queer voices, music, opinions, and lives. From Highway 101 to the world. I'm Roland Coy Medina. And I'm Chad Oliver Swimmer, coming to you from the unceded land, now known as Casper, California. Today is the Banned Books episode. How many challenges were made to our favorite and not-so-favorite books in 2021? Over 700 legal challenges affecting nearly 1,600 titles in the U.S. alone. Today we're going to feature readings of the great and newly great banned books with the voices of Diane Patterson, George Russell, Carrie Ann Becker-Fishman, Barbara Wexler, Z. Barron, Jenny Rorby, and the long-awaited return of Chipmunk. And with an introduction from independent bookseller Christy Olson Day of the Gallery Bookshop. Stay tuned! We're going to start tonight's show with Christy Olson Day. Since 2006, the owner of the Gallery Bookshop, an independent bookstore in Mendocino, and one of my favorite places. We've been participating in Ben Book Week one way or another, you know, for a long time. And it means something different this year than it has in past years. Uh, I'll tell you that. Some things have changed recently. This is the first year I can remember um, readers, customers walking into the store and saying, do you have a display of banned books? You know, they came in and asked for them this year during Banned Book Suite, which was different. Of course, the reason for that is also what has changed and what is really alarming. Um, I think everybody knows about the rise in, you know, this. there were more books challenged in libraries last year than ever before. One of the hugest things to me that has changed that I honestly didn't think would ever happen in the United States is that in Virginia, the state of Virginia sued Barnes & Noble to ask them to stop selling specific books. Hmm. Usually when we have, in book selling, have talked about, you know, what does banning mean? It has usually meant people trying to keep books out of public libraries, school libraries. Bookstores have occasionally been accused of banning books if we declined not to carry one. But of course, that's not banning. Um, you know, this bookstore carries maybe 20,000 titles out of the million-plus titles that are published every year and the, the many millions of titles that are in print. So if we choose not to carry one, we're not preventing anyone from getting it. But for a state to attempt to prevent a store from selling a particular title, that was a new and chilling development to mm-hmm. me. And of course, you probably won't be surprised to hear the two titles they wanted re- removed on grounds of obscenity were totally unobscene books that happened to feature characters, or in one case, a real person. It was a memoir, you know, gender nonconforming or LGBTQ+, genderqueer being one of them. So that was just chilling to me. And that, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm pleased to report that the judge that that lawsuit came before, you know, had a respect for the law as written. There's nothing obscene in that book. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was able to recognize that. Maybe your experiences is that people's attempts to challenge and ban books makes them more popular. Well, yeah, uh, my experience does play that out. Yeah, clearly folks coming in and asking for them like they never have before. I think that is true in general. It tends to call attention to the books in, in ways that are probably good for readership, which makes you question the strategy. I mean, I, I think that there's there's culture war at play there and this particular strategy is just trying to deepen a division. 
it's certainly not about what book banners say it's about pr- protecting children. Uh, you know, that, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't fly with me. Yeah. Yeah. Along those lines, I'm a dad. I have an eight year old. And he was amazed and astounded to hear that Captain Underpants mm-hmm. is a very challenged book. Yeah. And when I looked into why it was challenged, they said it's because of some violent content. And in general, when I've read it with him, and my feeling goes the same to Calvin and Hobbes, it encourages behavior that I'm not necessarily looking for in my seven or eight year old child. Yeah. Whether I would ban it or not is a different story. Right. I think that that's true also, like, one of my own children's favorite books and very popular still are the Diary of a Wimpy Kid books. They're hilarious. I don't know if you've read them. Oh, I, yeah. I highly recommend them. But when you read them with your kids, you, you have to point out to them, like, you know that in real life, if you act, if a person acted like Greg Heffley, like, you wouldn't really have any friends. He's He's kind of a jerk. And it's funny, but, you know, you have to have those conversations with kids. There's sort of two strains of books that people want to keep away from children. Some of them are are those types of things. You know, I feel like this exposes kids to behavior that I worry they'll emulate. That's a fair concern. You know, you have to talk to your kids when they're reading books, right? And I've also heard people want to keep books away from children that are too dark. I don't want them reading about scary things, dystopian things, uh, apocalyptic stories, drug use. And I've always thought that's a mistake, too, that that kids want to read about the things that they are concerned about. Mm-hmm. Concerned, fascinated, however you want to put it, they want to read about them because these things are on their minds, you know? And for a while there, all of the YA books were apocalyptic. And I heard a lot of parents and teachers say, I don't want my kids reading those I think there's a reason kids are thinking about this stuff, and books offer them answers. Yeah. Now, I think they're often wondering, wow, if the worst happens, will I be okay? Books mm-hmm. can give you the answers to those questions. So there's those. But then what I think we're seeing right now is a whole different kind of book banning. I think that a lot of the high-profile challenges right now, what those are about is preventing kids from reading books that challenge the power hierarchy. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I'm seeing across the board is books that center the experiences of disempowered people are threatening to a power hierarchy. And a lot of folks don't don't want kids to experience that. And I think that's that's really what you're seeing with books like Gender Queer. Issues there that center the kind of people that some parts of our culture don't want centered. Mm-hmm. Don't, certainly don't and don't want kids to experience that challenge to the power structure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For the first time in my experience here in Mendocino this year, we had a local person specifically complain repeatedly and ask us to remove children's books about drag queens. It was our children's Pride Month display. A longtime local person come in and say that they thought that the idea of drag queen story hour is child abuse and that we should not have those books here. And didn't just mention it once, but came back repeatedly and was pretty aggressive to our staff about that. And that struck me as a change as well. I think this idea that particularly the drag, that drag queens are a danger to children is, 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 it's especially inexplicable. I don't think it's sincere concern for children. I think it's, it's something entirely different. Uh, a book I'm thinking of, or a series of books I'm thinking of, the the whole Ten Ten series oh. that I grew up on Ten Ten, and our son got into Ten Ten at six, and we immediately were like, you know, these are 
actually pretty racist. There's some problems in Tintin, for sure. And, yeah. you know, we both were like, well, we came out okay. So yeah. That's that whole having the conversation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we did get that. And, you know, it turned out that our son's first question was, Dad, what's an opium smuggler? So it brought up a good conversation of what right. an opium smuggler is. And yeah. we read a lot of Tintin. And yeah, we observed that transition. I did, anyway, really clearly here, having been in bookselling for 20-some years now, like where Tintin, we used to feature it. You know, we had all the books face out. They were incredibly popular. So many parents with young children would come in and just be thrilled, right? Oh my God, it's Tintin. I'm so excited. They buy a bunch. And um, we saw the sales kind of slow. And then at one point, a customer said, gosh, you know, I love your store. It has a lot of progressive values. I'm kind of disappointed to see Tintin promoted like this. And we thought about it and went, you know, you're right. We, we want to still carry Tintin, but maybe we don't want to promote it in this way. You know, maybe we want to have it here for the people who ask for it, you know, mm-hmm. and then maybe that's enough. We see things differently, yes. <laughs> you know, as time goes by. Yeah. 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 We, don't, we don't need to prevent families from, from reading Tintin together, right? Like, like adults and parents and kids are able to absorb that content and deal with it, I think. You know, well, the problematic parts. Yeah. I, I, it, I have mixed feelings. Yeah. Especially, you know, seeing the, the racism is pretty deep. Yeah, yeah. That also brings me to the question, what is the feeling about, say, Mein Kampf, right. Hitler's book? Right. There's, there are all kinds of different places where you can find books, right? And I, and I, think, that, I think that when you're dealing with a book that problematic, you know, it really is about context and where it belongs like it probably doesn't belong in a trade bookstore you know Mm. but we want academics to be able to reach that stuff we want anybody who wants to know about it to be able to to get to it i i think it's important for books like that to be available through libraries does it mean a copy has to be sitting on the shelf at every public library probably not probably not there's not much demand Mm. we've always said the one book we might not order for someone was Mein Kampf, but frankly, we've never been asked, <laughs> right? I mean, so it doesn't need to be pulled from shelves. It's not on shelves, Yeah. but we don't need to tell people who who want to know more about it that they can't. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that serves anything. In bookstores, you know, we, we're having a bit of a reckoning about what content do we want to profit from? We here have generally felt like we're going to try to carry the books that our customers tell us they want. We're going to add the books that we like, but we're not going to decline to carry books that our customers clearly want just because we don't like them. We're not that type of store. There are some that are the vision of one person and they only carry what they like and that's fine. But we've generally felt we're going to try to carry the books that we think our customers want. Lately, sometimes I decline to put a book on the shelf if I don't particularly want to make money off of it because I don't like it. But I would still order it for a customer who asked. I might not. You, you get down to some books that have ideas in them that are so dangerous to impacted, marginalized people that I sometimes ask myself, would it be fair to ask an employee who is directly impacted by these ideas to sell this book to someone? And, and we have to grapple with some of those issues. But again, that's about commerce and what mm-hmm. we choose to sell and what we choose to profit from, which isn't the same thing as books in sort of the public library system where I think it's more appropriate to, to carry some books that might have very problematic content but that people still need access to, mm-hmm. um, you know, if only to study. 
So you have an excerpt from a band reading that you would like to share with us. Sure, I, I will. And I'll, I'll tell you my little story of, of asking myself what my favorite band books are and realizing that you know, almost every favorite book you can think of has been challenged. So the two favorites I had are Watership Down by Richard Adams, the children's book, which has been banned on grounds of violence. The, bunny, the bunnies, it gets scary. And then a favorite adult book is Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. He won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. And this has been banned for a variety of reasons or challenged throughout the world for a variety of reasons. So here's an excerpt from it that was the one that was chosen uh, by the the Nobel Committee to um, share on their page. We were 15 by then, already into our last year at Hailsham. We'd been in the pavilion getting ready for a game of rounders. The boys were going through a phase of enjoying rounders in order to flirt with us, so there were over 30 of us that afternoon. The downpour had started while we were changing, and we found ourselves gathering on the veranda, which was sheltered by the pavilion roof, while we waited for it to stop. But the rain kept going, and when the last of us had emerged, the veranda was pretty crowded, with everyone milling around restlessly. I remember Laura was demonstrating to me an especially disgusting way of blowing your nose for when you really wanted to put off a boy. Miss Lucy was the only guardian present. She was leaning over the rail at the front, peering into the rain like she was trying to see right across the playing field. I was watching her as carefully as ever in those days. And even as I was laughing at Laura, I was stealing glances at Miss Lucy's back. I remember wondering if there wasn't something a bit odd about her, about her posture, the way her head was bent down just a little too far, so she looked like a crouching animal waiting to pounce. And the way she was leaning forward over the rail It meant drops from the overhanging gutter were only just missing her, but she seemed to show no sign of caring. I remember actually convincing myself there was nothing unusual in all this, that she was simply anxious for the rain to stop, and turning my attention back to what Laura was saying. Then a few minutes later, when I'd forgotten all about Miss Lucy and was laughing my head off at something, I suddenly realized things had gone quiet around us and that Miss Lucy was speaking. She was standing at the same spot as before, but she'd turned to face us now, so her back was against the rail and the rainy sky behind her. No, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt you, she was saying. And I could see that she was talking to two boys sitting on the benches immediately in front of her. Her voice wasn't exactly strange, but she was speaking very loudly in the sort of voice she'd used to announce something to the lot of us. And that was why we'd all gone quiet. No, Peter... I'm going to have to stop you. I can't listen to you anymore and keep silent. Then she raised her gaze to include the rest of us and took a deep breath. All right, you can hear this. It's for all of you. It's time someone spelt it out. We waited while she kept staring at us. Later, some people said they'd thought she was gonna give us a big telling off. Others that she was about to announce a new rule on how we played rounders. But I knew before she said another word it would be something more. Boys, you must forgive me for listening, but you were right behind me, so I couldn't help it. Peter, why don't you tell the others what you were saying to Gordon just now? Peter J. looked bewildered, and I could see him getting ready his injured innocence face. But then Miss Lucy said again, this time much more gently, Peter, go on. Please tell the others what you were just saying. Peter shrugged. We were just talking about what it would feel like if we became actors, what sort of life it would be. 
Yes, Miss Lucy said. And you were saying to Gordon that you'd have to go to America to stand the best chance. Peter Jay shrugged again and muttered quietly, Yes, Miss Lucy. But Miss Lucy was now moving her gaze over the lot of us. I know you didn't mean any harm, but there's just too much talk like this. I hear it all the time. It's been allowed to go on and it's not right. I could see more drops coming off the gutter and landing on her shoulder, but she didn't seem to notice. If no one else will talk to you, she continued, then I will. The problem, as I see it, is that you've been told and not told. You've been told, but none of, none of you really understand, and I dare say some people are quite happy to leave it that way, but I'm not. If you're going to have decent lives, then you've got to know and know properly. None of you will go to America. None of you will be film stars. And none of you will be working in supermarkets, as I heard some of you planning the other day. Your lives are set out for you. You'll become adults, and then before you're old, before you're even middle-aged, you'll start to donate your vital organs. That's what each of you was created to do. You're not like the actors you watch on your videos. You're not even like me. You were brought into this world for a purpose, and your futures, all of them, have been decided. So you're not to talk that way anymore. You'll be leaving Hailsham before long, and it's not so far off the day you'll be preparing for your first donations. You need to remember that. If you're to have decent lives, you have to know who you are and what lies ahead of you, every one of you. Then she went silent. But my impression was that she was continuing to say things inside her head because for some time her gaze kept roving over us, going from face to face, just as if she were still speaking to us. We were all pretty relieved when she turned to look out over the playing field again. It's not so bad now, she said, even though the rain was as steady as ever. Let's just go out there. Then maybe the sun will come out too. <laughs> it's one of my favorite books. <laughs> I have not read it. It's pretty. <laughs> Kazuo Ishiguro has a has an interesting outlook on the world. Um, yeah. Can you give us a little context? Well, it's about a boarding school um, where kids are experimentally treated very well to see if they can have a good life, in spite of the fact that they are clones who were created just to be organ donors. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it's a near-future dystopia. Um, and I think it's also kind of an allegory. I mean, I read it as an allegory for what it's like for everyone to grow up and kind of get the bad news about being human. <laughs> 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 yeah. I think that's kind of what it's about. <laughs> well, Christy Olson Day, thank you so much for sharing with us. My pleasure. You are listening to Pride Nation 101, queer voices, music, opinions, and lives from Highway 101 to the world. I'm Chad Swimmer, and we are doing a banned book episode. Sappho of the island of Lesbos lived 2,600 years ago in the Mediterranean. As remarkable as her poetry is, is the fact that it survives to this day in spite of hundreds of years of people trying to erase it from the face of the earth. It is sensual, beautiful, contemporary, and timeless, and was absolutely, certainly, nothing that middle-aged Christians could tolerate. She was called the poetess of hell, 
And a thousand years ago, 1,600 years after she lived, Pope Gregory VII is reported to have publicly burned her poems. There is no reading more fitting to start this show with than Sappho, and there's nobody that I know of more fitting to read it than musician and activist and all-around amazing human being, Diane Patterson. You like a goddess undisguised, but she rejoiced especially in your song. Now she stands out among Lydian women as after sunset the rose-fingered moon exceeds all stars. Light reaches equally over the brine sea and thick flowering fields. A beautiful dew has poured down, roses bloom, tender parsley and blossoming honey clover. Pacing far away, she remembers gentle Athos with desire, perhaps consumes her delicate soul. To go there, this not knowing, much she sings in the middle. It is not easy for us to rival the beautiful form of goddesses. You might have. The sweet apple reddens on a high branch, high upon highest, missed by the apple pickers. No, they didn't miss so much as couldn't touch. Herdsmen crush under their feet a hyacinth in the mountains. On the ground, purple blooms. I simply wished to die. Weeping, she left me and said this too. We've suffered terribly, Sappho, and I leave you against my will. I answered, go happily and remember me. You know how we cared for you. If not, let me remind you the lovely times we shared. Many crowns of violets, roses and crocuses together you set before me and many scented wreaths made from blossoms around your soft throat with pure sweet oil you anointed me and on a soft gentle bed you quenched your desire no holy sight we left uncovered no grove dance sound Musician and an activist, Diane Patterson, reading Sappho of Lesbos, accompanied by Sufi music of Turkey, performed by the Erdemsel brothers.
Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass was first published in 1855, and, like Sappho's writings, is timeless, sensual, and quite iconoclastic. It brought condemnation from Puritans. One critic of the time wrote, It ought to be enough for Walt Whitman, if he honestly thinks his book is a pure one, to know that the pure in society will shun it, and that it will be sought out and laughed over by lewd women, prurient boys, and hoary-headed old lechers, to know that this notice of his volume will stir to read it only the dregs of the social and moral world into which it goes. It was banned in 1882 by the District Attorney of Boston. Libraries throughout the Union refused to carry it, and it eventually ended up costing Whitman his job with the U.S. Department of the Interior. Also, like Sappho's work, Leaves of Grass later came to be recognized as one of the most important pieces of literature of all time. In an ironic footnote to history, in 1998, then-President Bill Clinton gave a copy to intern Monica Lewinsky. Here we have excerpts of Leaves of Grass, read by retired film studies professor and environmental activist George Russell. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. The human race is filled with passion. So, medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. I think I could turn and live with animals. They are so placid and self-contained. I stand back and look at them long and long. They do not sweat and whine about their condition. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. They do not make me sick discussing their duty to God. Not one is dissatisfied. Not one is demented with the mania of owning things. Not one kneels to another nor to his kind that lived thousands of years ago. Not one is respectable or unhappy over the whole earth. Are you the new person drawn toward me? To begin with, take warning. I am surely far different from what you suppose. Do you suppose you will find in me your ideal? Do you think it's so easy to have me become your lover? Do you think the friendship of me would be unalloyed satisfaction? Do you think I am trusty and faithful? Do you see no further than this facade? Love the earth and sun and the animals, despise riches, give alms to everyone that asks, Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence toward the people. Take off your hat to nothing known or unknown or to any man or number of men. Go freely with powerful, uneducated persons and with the young and with the mothers of families. Read these leaves in the open air every season of every year of your life. Re-examine all you have been told at school or church or in any book. 
dismiss whatever insults your own soul. And your very flesh shall be a great poem and have the richest fluency not only in its words but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. Resist much, obey little. Peace is always beautiful. That was Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, read and accompanied on guitar by George Russell. In 1937, Zora Neale Hurston wrote the classic, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Sixty years later, in 1997, the book was challenged in Virginia, but survived the challenge in court. Parents objected to the language and the sexual explicitness. This is the last paragraph, read by former English teacher Carrie Ann Becker-Fishman. In Carrie's words, I've cried reading it in front of students so many times. Something about her self-satisfaction at the end, in spite of her grief, so damn touching, kind of the double-edged sword of life. So much pain, so much beauty. The day of the gun and the bloody body in the courthouse came and commenced to sing a sobbing sigh out of every corner in the room, out of each and every chair and thing commenced to sing, commenced to sob and sigh, singing and sobbing. Then tea cake came prancing around her where she was, and the song of the sigh flew out of the window and lit in the top of the pine trees. Tea cake with the sun for a shawl. Of course he wasn't dead. He could never be dead until she herself had finished feeling and thinking. The kiss of his memory made pictures of love and light against the wall. Here was peace. She pulled in her horizon like a great fish net, pulled it from around the waist of the world and draped it over her shoulder. So much of life in its meshes. She called in her soul to come and see. Look back to those years, true inspiration. Look back to those years, true inspiration. Here we have Barbara Wexler, lawyer, 
queer mom and serious theater aficionado as well as performer reading the late great Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, is one of the darkest musicals ever written. It is the unsettling tale of a Victorian-era barber who returns home to London after he had been exiled for 15 years for a crime he did not commit. He decides to take revenge on the corrupt judge who ruined his life and on all humanity by murdering customers as he shaved them. A Timberline Regional High School located in New Hampshire canceled a production of Sweeney Todd in 2014 after the administration deemed the play simply unacceptable. It should be noted that one high school actually canceled this for a good reason. In April 2016, the musical was called off in Auckland, New Zealand after two boys' necks were cut accidentally with a prop razor. They unfortunately had to go to the emergency room, one with serious injuries. Many of the people in the audience did not even know that the fake blood was not fake blood. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. His skin was pale and his eyes were odd. He shaved the faces of gentlemen who never thereafter were heard of again. He trod a path that few have trod. Did Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. He kept a shop in London town of fancy clients and good renown. And what if none of their souls were saved? They went to their maker impeccably shaved by Sweeney by Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Swing your razor wide, Sweeney, hold it to the skies. Freely flows the blood of those who moralize. His needs were few, his room was bare, a lavabo and a fancy chair, a mug of suds, a leather strop, an apron, a towel, and a pail and a mop. For neatness, he deserved a nod, did Sweeney Todd the demon barber of Fleet Street. Inconspicuous Sweeney was, quick and quiet and clean he was. Back of his smile, under his word, Sweeney heard music that nobody heard. Sweeney pondered and Sweeney planned like a perfect machine he planned. Sweeney was smooth, Sweeney was subtle, Sweeney would blink and rats would scuttle. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd, he served a dark and a vengeful god. What happened then? Well, that's the play. And he wouldn't want us to give it away. Not Sweeney, not Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Barbara Wexler reading late, great, gay Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. shop 
The Tale of Sweeney Todd by Stephen Sondheim Read by Barbara Wexler Mexican-American writer Sandra Cisneros has had more than one of her books challenged, including the acclaimed House on Mango Street. Her disturbing but very real descriptions of sexual and domestic violence, as well as her unabashed ethnic pride, has put her in the crosshairs of the conservative censorship movement. Here we have Chicana educator and activist Z. Varon reading the short story Eleven from Woman Hollering Creek. What they don't understand about birthdays and what they never tell you is that when you're 11, you're also 10 and 9 and 8 and 7 and 6 and 5 and 4 and 3 and 2 and 1. And when you wake up on your 11th birthday, you expect to feel 11, but you don't. You open your eyes and everything's just like yesterday, only it's today. And you don't feel 11 at all. You feel like you're still 10. And you are. Underneath that year, that makes you 11. Like some days you might say something stupid and that's the part of you that's still 10. Or maybe some days you might need to sit on your mama's lap because you're scared and that's the part of you that's five. And maybe one day when you're all grown up, maybe you will need to cry like if you're three and that's okay. That's what I tell mama when she's sad and needs to cry. Maybe she's feeling three. Because the way you grow old is kind of like an onion. Or like the rings inside a tree trunk. Or like my little wooden dolls that fit one inside the other each year inside the next one. That's how being 11 years old is. You don't feel 11. Not right away. It takes a few days. Weeks even. Sometimes even months before you say 11 when they ask you. And you don't feel smart 11. Not until you're almost 12. That's the way it is. Only today, I didn't have only 11 years rattling inside me like pennies in a tin band-aid box. Today, I wish I was 102 instead of 11. Because if I was 102, I'd have known what to say when Mrs. Price put the red sweater on my desk. I would have known how to tell her it wasn't mine, instead of just sitting there with that look on my face and nothing coming out of my mouth. Whose is this? Mrs. Price says, and she holds the red sweater up in the air for all the class to see. Whose? It's been sitting in the coat room for a month. Not mine, everyone says. Not me. It has to belong to somebody, Mrs. Price keeps saying, but nobody can remember. It's an ugly sweater with red plastic buttons and a collar and sleeves all stretched out like you could use it for a jump rope. It's maybe a thousand years old, and even if it belonged to me, I wouldn't say so. Maybe because I'm skinny. Maybe because she doesn't like me. But that stupid Silvia Sandivad says, I think it belongs to Raquel. An ugly sweater like that, all raggedy and old. But Mrs. Price believes her. Mrs. Price takes the sweater and puts it right on my desk. But when I open my mouth, nothing comes out. That's not, I don't, you're not, not mine. I finally say in a little voice that was maybe me when I was four. Of course it's yours, Mrs. Price says. I remember you wearing it once. Because she's older and the teacher, she's right. And I'm not. Not mine, not mine, not mine. But Mrs. Price is already turning to page 32 and the math problem number four. I don't know why, but all of a sudden I'm feeling sick inside. Like the part of me that's three wants to come out of my eyes. Only I squeeze them shut tight and bite down on my teeth real hard and try to remember that today I am 11. 11. 
Mama is making a cake for me tonight. And when Papa comes home, everybody will sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. But when the sick feeling goes away and I open my eyes, the red sweater is still sitting there like a big red mountain. I move this red sweater to the corner of my desk with my ruler. I move my pencil and books and eraser as far from it as possible. I even move my chair a little to the right. Not mine, not mine, not mine. In my head, I'm thinking how long till lunchtime, how long till I can take the red sweater and throw it over the schoolyard fence or leave it hanging on a parking meter or bunch it up into a little ball and toss it in the alley. Except when math period ends, Mrs. Price says loud and in front of everybody, now, Rachel, that's enough. Because she sees I've shoved the red sweater to the tippy tip corner of my desk and it's hanging all over the edge like a waterfall, but I don't care. Rachel, Miss Price says. She says it like she's getting mad. You put that sweater on right now. No more nonsense. But it's not now, Mrs. Price says. This is when I wish I wasn't 11. Because all the years inside of me, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1, are pushing at the back of my eyes when I put one arm through one sleeve of the sweater that smells like cottage cheese and then the other arm through the other and stand there with my arms apart like if the sweater hurts me. And it does, all itchy and full of germs that aren't even mine. That's when everything I've been holding in since this morning, since when Miss Price put the sweater on my desk, finally lets go. And all of a sudden I'm crying in front of everybody. I wish I was invisible, but I'm not. I'm 11 and it's my birthday today and I'm crying like I'm three in front of everybody. I put my head down on my desk and bury my face in my stupid clown sweater arms, my face all hot and spit coming out of my mouth because I can't stop the little animal noises from coming out of me until there aren't any more tears left in my eyes and it's just my body shaking like when you have the hiccups and my whole head hurts like when you drink milk too fast. But the worst part is, right before the bell rings for lunch, that stupid Felis Lopez, who is even dumber than Silvia Saldivar, she says she remembers that the red sweater's hers. I take it off right away and give it to her. Only Mrs. Price pretends like everything's okay. Today I'm 11. There's a cake Mama's making for tonight. And when Papa comes home from work, we'll eat it. There will be candles and presents and everyone will sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you, Raquel. Only it's too late. I'm 11 today. I'm 11 and 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 2, and 1. But I wish I was 102. I wish I was anything but 11. Because I want today to be far away already. Far away like a runaway balloon, like a tiny O in the sky. Zivarron Reading 11 by Sandra Cisneros Jenny Rorby is a natural historian, a rescuer of animals, and has authored many young adult novels. Her 2019 book, Freeing Finch, was challenged and banned in Texas for its central character being transgender. Jenny is accompanied here by her neighbors, the ravens, and the sound of the water from her Mitchell Creek backyard.
My name is Morgan Delgado, Jr. I was eight years old when Maddie Baxter, our nearest neighbor, began calling me Finch. The bird she named me after hit our front window a couple of days after my father moved out. It sounded like someone had thrown a clod of dirt. Mama jumped sky high and turned from the stove. Jesus, Morgan, what was that? Her hair was coming in all soft and fuzzy. Chemo hair, she called it, curly instead of straight, the way it had been before the treatments. The ceiling light made it look like she was wearing a halo. I'd been watching TV and got up to see what happened. There was the powdery print of a bird's breast and wings against the glass. The longest feathers were outlined like angel wings, ghostly and beautiful on the pane. A bird hit the window. Mama's eyes filled with tears. Everything made her cry back then. I'm going to see if it's dead, okay? The bird lay on the deck in a blaze of light from the living room lamps. I thought for sure it was dead, but when I picked it up, the little clicking sounds came from its open beak, like it was struggling to breathe. Its heart fluttered against my palm. Take it down to Maddie, Mama said when I came into the kitchen carrying the bird. She'll know what to do. I'll call and tell her you're coming. Mama held the bird against her cheek while I put my knockoff Uggs in a coat. She handed me the bird and a flashlight from the kitchen drawer. I ran down the road to Maddie's driveway with the bird cupped in my hands. Her porch light came on when I got near the house and the front door opened. Maddie is really old, but she knows everything there is to know about wildlife. Let's see what you've got. I opened my hands and held up the cold-cocked bird. It's a female house finch. What was it doing flying at night? Something probably startled and it flew toward the light. Were your lights on? Uh-huh. Mama don't like it dark anymore. Maddie looked at me like she still has a habit of doing over the tops of her reading glasses. Doesn't like. She doesn't like it dark anymore. It hit real hard. I punched holes in the lid of the shoebox with a pencil while Maddie lined the bottom with clean rags. The bird looked like it was lying in a coffin before Maddie taped the lid down. Don't it, doesn't it need food and water? Do you eat when you're sleeping? No. Well, then we'll put it into some place warm and dark. If it survives the night, we'll let it go in the morning. Mama was waiting for me on the front porch when I got home. What did she say? It's a female house finch, and she thinks it will be okay. I'm not sure why I didn't tell her the truth. Maddie said maybe it would die or maybe it wouldn't. That's good, honey, but don't get your hopes up. It hit the window pretty hard. It'll be okay. Mama nodded and took a deep breath and closed her eyes. The first thing the next morning, I ran down to Maddie's. I'm glad you showed up. I'd forgotten all about that bird. We'll test fly her in the bathroom to make sure she doesn't have a broken wing. She shooed Rufus, who followed us into the downstairs bathroom. She closed the door and pulled the shower curtain across the tub, and I opened the lid. The bird was standing up. She blinked at us, flew straight at the mirror, hit it lightly, and fell behind a bottle of mouthwash. Maddie caught her and tested her feet, which clamped down on Maddie's index finger. The only thing wrong with this bird is she doesn't appreciate you saved her life. Shall we? Maddie nodded toward the door, which I opened and followed her outside. In the yard, we turned to face my house. The bird's feet were clamped around Maddie's finger. That's the way home, she said, kissed the top of its head and moved her other hand away. The bird stayed perched on her finger as if it was tame as a parakeet. I held my breath. After a few seconds, May, I said, maybe she is hurt. The bird looked at me, chirped, and was gone. I guess not, I grinned. One lucky bird, Maddie said, a voice with wings. She held her hand up and we high-fived. From now on, I will call you Finch, do you mind? I shook my head. But how come? 
Maddie shrugged. I don't know. Maybe so every time I see you, I'll say, Hi, Finch, and we'll both remember this moment. I'm glad I didn't bring you a skunk. Maddie laughed. You saved a little life, even if the bird isn't grateful, I am. She leaned and kissed the top of my head, which, like she'd done the birds before setting it free. Anyone who would have done the same thing, I said. I wish that were true. You'll discover people are either givers or takers, and a good way to judge is by what they can turn their backs on. We stood by side by side watching the chickadees at her feeder. I wish I could save Mama. Maddie put her hand on my shoulder. Your mother's fighting hard to stay here with you. That will make all the difference. It occurred to me that Maddie hadn't asked if we'd heard from Dad. I'm named after my father. Why'd you really decide to call me Finch all of a sudden? I give people animal names so I can remember what they brought me. Not because you hate my dad. Maddie doesn't answer. It's my fault he left. What in the world makes you think that? Because, you know, the thing that's wrong with me. She knelt and hugged me. Finch, honey, if that was the reason, you should rot in hell. He told Mama she was raising a Nancy boy. What does that mean? It means he's an ignorant. Maddie's lips compressed. Look, Finch, you are not a sissy, which is what that means. You are tough as nails, little girl. I don't care that you were born a boy. Neither does your mom. It happens. There are a lot of kids in the world like you. There are? Absolutely. Hundreds, thousands even. You are what you are in your head and your heart. Finch, not what it says on your birth certificate. Ginny Rorby reading the first chapter of her own novel, Freeing Finch. In recent years, one of the most challenged series of kids' books was Captain Underpants by Dav Pilkey. Dav is also the author of the Dogman series, which many youth credit as being their road to literacy. One of Dav's popular books, Ook and Gluck, Kung Fu Cavemen from the Future, was called out for having anti-Asian racist stereotypes. Dav apologized, worked with the publisher, and decided to stop the book's printing. It is interesting to note that the book has some pretty radical environmental ideas where Ook and Gluck travel to the future to stop large corporations from logging all the forests. Back to Captain Underpants, these books were challenged because of graphic violence. It is to be noted that these are graphic novels, and the level of graphic violence in the books is about on par with Looney Tunes of the 1960s. We have Chipmunk doing a reading of Captain Underpants in the tyrannical retaliation of the Turbo Toilet 2000. Chipmunk, take it away. Chapter 13, 11 minutes later. George! Harold! Get down here right now! George and Harold opened their eyes. Warily, they stumbled to the treehouse door and looked down. George's mom and dad and Harold's mom were standing down in the yard looking very angry. The school called George's dads. They told us that you kids weren't in class today. Uh-oh, said George. We're dad, said Harold. Would you mind explaining what you've been doing all day, asked Harold's mom angrily. George and Harold decided to confess everything. We couldn't go to school today, said George, because we had to save the earth from an evil crazy guy who was riding around in a giant pair of robotic pants. Yeah, said Harold. We've spent the last day traveling through time, running from dinosaurs and teaching cavemen how to defend themselves. Very funny, shouted George's dad. 
If you think you can skip school and goof around all day, you're in for a big surprise. George and Harold has never seen their parents so angry. The two boys spent the next five hours mowing lawns, weeding gardens, vacuuming houses, washing cars, dusting furniture, cleaning out garages, whitewashing fences, doing dishes, folding laundry, and taking out garbage. It was exhausting work, but it was nothing compared to what was to come next. Chapter 14, What Was to Come Next George and Harold have never been so tired in their lives. At 9.30 p.m., they grunted goodnight to each other and limped into their houses like zombies. Would you like a snack, dear, said Harold's mother. No thanks, he mumbled. He was too tired for a snack, too tired to take a bath, too tired to put his pajamas on or take his shoes off. He didn't even have the energy to turn off his bedroom light. He just collapsed on top of his bed and fell asleep instantly. 22 seconds later, the telephone rang. It was George. Harold's mother brought the phone into his room and held it up to his ear. Harold was too tired to even say hello. He just mumbled, Mmph! I just remembered something, said George, panicking. Tomorrow is test day. Oh no, Harold cried. I forgot all about that. Me too, George. We're having major tests in in our classes tomorrow. We're going to have to stay up all night long and study. That was Chipmunk doing a reading of Dav Pilkey's Captain Underpants and the Tyrannical Retaliation of the Turbo Toilet 2000. And I would give credit for that incredible cover of that Who song, I Can't Explain, except that it was on an obscure CD that is only identified as a break from the norm. Juno Dawson is a British transgender activist and author of young adult fiction and nonfiction. Dawson's notable works include This Book is Gay, Mind Your Head, Margaret and Me, and many others, most of which have been the subject of challenges in many different parts of the world. We are going to hear Roland read an excerpt of What's the Tea? All around the world and all across history, there is evidence of people changing their gender identity. But it's enough to know this. Some people change their gender. I think that's a really easy concept to wrap your head around. Sometimes a person who was told they were a girl realizes they're really a boy. Sometimes a person who was told they were a boy realizes they're really a girl. Sometimes people realize the terms boy or girl don't make sense for them as an individual and reject or indeed embrace both. The trans label encapsulates us all because we've all been brave enough to make that change. That's what unites us. It's all quite straightforward. I'm really not sure what the fuss is about to be honest. All over the world, a small group of people have made some decisions about their lives. Easy peasy. That said, you'd be forgiven for being very confused about the whole transgender thing. Since I wrote This Book is Gay in 2012, there has been an unprecedented number of column inches in the press given over to stories about trans people. We find ourselves in the middle of a very unpleasant storm. There are debates almost every week on morning TV shows about whether we should exist. A great many of these are based on falsehoods and opinions. Rarely have so few people been talked about so much. The press has very much treated trans people and or non-binary people 
like we're something brand new, which simply isn't the case. Either way, a lot of people have a lot of questions about trans people, and that's okay. It's not transphobic to have questions. It's transphobic to have concerns. One only has concerns about bad things. Global warming, bird flu, and corrupt politicians. Trans people are just people. Never fear. I am on hand to help out and serve a delicious platter of jargon-free info so we can all move on with our lives. So, in the midst of so much chatter, what is the tea? Let's take a look at some of the common concerns we often see in the media. I'll have a word with those people so you don't have to. But what should I call them? Calm down, Carol. It's going to be fine. Here, have a brandy. The very simple answer is their name. If someone introduces themselves as John, you should definitely call them John. That would surely be the most polite thing to do. If what you mean is, what's the politically correct way to refer to a trans person? Well, the answer is in that question. Calling a trans person trans is fine. That was my co-host, Roland Corey Medina, reading Juno Dawson's What's the Tea? Thank you for spending the last hour with us. Roland Corey Medina and Chad Swimmer here on Pride Nation 101. We would like to thank Christy Olson Day, Diane Patterson, George Russell, Carrie Ann Becker-Fishman, Barbara Wexler, Ziva Ron, Jenny Rorby, Chipmunk, and of course, all the people who want to ban the books so they give us a chance to feel really self-righteous. I also want to give a shout out for some credit to Ravel Gautier, Disquiet Media's new editor intern. And here's Ginny Rorby with a quote from Stephen King. If there's one American belief I hold above all others, it is that those who would set themselves up in judgment on matters of what is right and what is best should be given no rest, that they should have to defend their behavior most stringently. As a nation, we have been through too many fights to preserve our right of free thought to let them go just because some prude with a highlighter doesn't approve of them. And, of course, the views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the staff or management of any station that airs Pride Nation 101. Only those of ourselves and our guests. See you next month. See you next month. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.